Welcome back. It's time for customers to click. Today, I welcome Evan Padgett to the show. Evan is the Chief Operating Officer at Stealth Venture Labs, a performance marketing agency in the US. And today's episode is going to be quite focused on subscriptions. We'll be talking about how to manage subscription commerce, how to introduce subscriptions into your business, and what you need to be thinking about outside of marketing if you want to run a successful subscription. Subscriptions are all over the place now, and with the plugins available, any business can get set up really quickly, but just because you can, should you? Let's get Evan on now so we can find out. Hi, Evan. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, Would you mind just giving uh, us a a little bit of your background and a, a quick introduction? Great. Yeah, thanks, Will. Evan Padgett. I've been in direct marketing now for 20 years. Jumped in the early 2000s with um, a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, all subscription, focus on health and wellness products, women's fashion after that, focus on brands like Just Fab and Shoe Dazzle, sort of worldwide subscription commerce brands. Just kind of grew with the industry as it started, uh, as I started in 2002. From there, ended up a at a company called Thrive Market, a big online grocer here in the United States, focused on delivering healthy, uh, you know, sort of hard to get foods at very reasonable prices, the organics and non-GMO related foods. And then for the past five years, been here at a company called Stealth Venture Labs as their chief operating officer, focused on building brands, living now on the service provider side instead of being the client for the first time in, in my career. So applying the knowledge, I guess, to brands that we work with. Yeah, awesome. Sounds great. So what opportunities do you see for those brands that you're working with? Well, right now, sort of the biggest opportunities I'd say are Never has there been a better time really to diversify your media mix for for direct-to-consumer brand advertisers. So meaning that everybody, you know, it's this horse has been beaten dead, but, you know, iOS 14.5 really changed the landscape with attribution. You even look at, you know, so, you know, 14.5 was sort of the final blow. You can look before like all the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Before that, marketers had a lot more tools at their disposal, but whether it's right or wrong, the world that we live in now is more focused on privacy as a marketer makes it more of a challenge, but big opportunities involve jumping onto TikTok. TikTok's a great media-friendly tool right now. Um, Our firm has been spending a lot more on TikTok over the past basically 12 months from about 15,000 a month to about 1.2 million a month for all of our clients. So media diversification and getting your metrics in order are sort of the things you have to be doing right now. But the opportunities involve finding new channels and new ways to advertise because I think we're at a pretty critical juncture in the advertising landscape. It's just sort of, you know, I equate it to algorithm changes that have happened in the past, platform changes that have happened. We're, we're at a big shift. So finding new ways to market and get new customers, starting with new channels and new tactics is where to be. Cool. And what about, um, I guess, what about like business models? So how do you feel about like subscriptions? Well, I might be a little biased. Um, yeah. I love subscriptions. COVID and, and the pandemic basically sort of changed people's buying behaviors pretty radically. And I mean, I say this, I think a lot of people say this, okay, I can't say I coined this, but it really moved e-commerce forward 10 years in people's adoption of it because um, most companies didn't have massive disruptions in their supply chain. People that weren't able to get to the grocery store are now buying meals at home. People that out there shopping for clothes are now buying online because the policies are so friendly and easy. So the focus and shift into online has led to a really friendly atmosphere, I think, for subscriptions. Subscriptions need to do a few things. Like you can't just put stuff in a box and send it and say, hey, here's your stuff. You, you establish a relationship on the most successful subscriptions. Um, but 
the subscription commerce atmosphere, the ability to create predictable recurring revenue and have a predictable business is is great in every aspect. It takes a little bit more work, but from a financial model and a business model perspective, I think it's hard to beat. Yeah, uh, interesting. I, I saw a post on, on LinkedIn by Eli, Eli Weiss, I think. Uh, I, I forgot to actually ask him how to pronounce his surname, I think. But he's the he's at uh, Olipop, a mm-hmm. um, subscription drinks brand. And he posted something today about how they were looking into their subscription model and trying to make it more, more exciting, basically. You know, what is the reason you would you would subscribe and stay subscribed when with them, for example, you can go buy their products on Amazon or uh, I guess like Walmart or something. In, um, yep. In the the omni channel problem, so to speak. Yeah. So maybe we'll get into the retention a bit, actually. But what about introducing subscriptions? So obviously for them, I, I think it was quite a core part of their model anyway from the start. But for businesses that are that haven't got that subscription model but want to, how would you go? How would you advise going about that? What are the kind of deep do's and don'ts? Yeah. So I think any business, virtually any business, really at this point, can have a subscription or recurring revenue model assigned to it. So I've been challenged with this time and time again. To ask, people ask me like, how do I bring subscription into my business? And it's one of a few things. First off, what is a disposable or reusable part of your product and experience? So for some brands, that might be a consumable. You know, you eat it, you you drink it, it, it goes away. You need more, and it's a replenishment model there. So that's kind of the easiest and most obvious. But you could get further from that and look at what's a service you could provide to enhance your product. So uh, a subscription that could be around, um, you know, some sort of, you know, take Amazon Prime, obviously one of the biggest subscriptions in the world. It's this, it's got all these passive perks that most people don't even know about. How do you apply that to your brand? How do you provide VIP services as part of your subscription. And with that comes, you know, either discounts, it comes with additional gifts on your order, things like that. You've got a, a big example, I think it's Costco. Yeah. I remember looking into there, there was an article that really dived into their finances basically a few years ago and basically said that they don't really make much money off the products they sell. Yeah. But from the customer point of view, that's what you're, that's what you're there to buy, right? That's the product. The subscription, the membership is just your access to it, mm-hmm. right? It's from, from the customer point of view, but it's almost entirely, that's what, that's where Costco gets its profit from yeah, those, and, and uh, so we, I don't know what it is, like 99, I think it's like $99, 99 pounds a, a year. Yeah, like. it's it varies from like 60 to $100 USD. And that's actually the exact model we did at Thrive Market. We marketed ourselves when I was there as Costco meets Whole Foods online. Very literally right. the same thing where we are we were selling products that um, you know, opinions aside, were more expensive because they're organic, they're non-GMO, they're healthy supply chain type products. And here in the United States, when you try to buy an organic version of a product, it's more expensive than the non-organic version. But we flip that model on its head, say, okay, we're going to get our margin solely on the membership, which was is $60 a year. And then we basically sell and deliver at cost. Like, of course, there's a per unit markup that goes into shipping and, and the freight, yeah. but we were not making money at the time on selling the product. That's the simplest way to make them out. Now your revenue, your margin's kind of fixed and at customer acquisition, the math gets a little tight, but fact of the matter is like, that's a, that's an easy model that you could do for just, if you have a annual perk for 60 to a hundred dollars, you can find something that gives you a benefit to a customer. 
Yeah. Well, um, would you put kind of warranties and things in this same category? So like if you can get, or maybe not warranties, but like support package. So yeah, I, I think that, you know, you, the, these, this model of sort of extended warranties slash electronic support, like when you go to Best Buy or even from Walmart or, or uh, Amazon, you buy something and it's like, oh, do you want the extended tech package or whatever? Obviously that's hard, high margin dollars because you buy a TV, nothing will happen with it. And that $50 goes away, but the, the subscription element of that, sure. And providing additional support and the ability to say you have a, you know, I have a new refrigerator, a newish refrigerator. So it's on Wi-Fi and all this stuff, all these things I don't need. Right. But with that, you could get a bigger a subscription package that for, I want to say it's like $50 a year, sends a technician out. If you have any problems with it, it's a peace of mind play. It sends a technician out and you also get like a replace, like free replacements of, of key parts for the next five years, or as long as the subscription's active. There's all these weird things like that. But again, now they've created a, a subscription model that is for a company like that. Like I could pay a hundred dollars a year. Okay, sure. I just bought a three thousand dollar refrigerator, a hundred dollars a year to make sure it's going to stay in tip top shape. That seems like a reasonable cost. After five years, they made another $500 in margin off of me, pure margin, because nothing will probably even go wrong with that thing. And if it does, yeah. I got the peace of mind. So there's some breakage, but large margin. Especially when it's new, right? You, ex you expect these products to last, I don't know, maybe five years? Easy, yeah. Right? So I'm actually looking at uh, leasing a car, a new car. And something I've noticed recently, actually, because I, I looked at this last year and I, I don't recall seeing it on these on these websites, but a lot of them are now offering you the option to add maintenance to your lease. Yep. And on a pretty, uh, like pretty average car, it can be anything from like 20 to 35 pounds a month. Mm -hmm. Right. Just so that if you have to go into a garage, you're, you're fine. It do, does. I don't think it covers everything. Right. So, but it's, it's probably it, certain it's things. It's a little bit but... limited. And obviously insurance would cover like crash damage. But yeah, I mean, like 30, 35 pounds a month, potentially just, and a lot of these are new cars as well. Most leases are new cars. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, you don't expect anything to go wrong with it. So actually over the five, four or five years, you might have the car. You're probably just paying for your annual checkups and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and you know, maybe a new tire. Uh, or something like that you know, if something goes wrong. So it's it's very easy for you as the, the buyer to say, well, you know, it's only an extra 35 a month, right? That might be 5% of the cost of the of your monthly lease anyway. Absolutely, so think, well, right? Yeah. 5% for peace of mind? Yeah, why not? And, um, and and here's the other, the, the thing with a lease car. So I, I've experienced this in the past too. Lease cars are frequently, obviously not all the time, but frequently corporate base cars so like uh you know a perk for working at a company stuff like that so then there's also the aspect of if i am a business owner and i have a team member that i'm leasing a car through the company and there's tax reasons to do that etc but then for me to pay you know like you said like 35 pounds to not have to worry about basic maintenance and just be like okay it, something this car doesn't sound right it goes to the shop i'll do that because i'll run that through the business as well so there's like the the aspect of who is paying for that and who the, the ideal customer is and leases tend to correlate really heavily with business cars not just consumers are obviously a big part of that too I, it's funny you mentioned automobiles though because there's a i don't want to say dangerous and make it put off put it off but there's a trend 
that I am seeing now with features of a car on subscription as well. So because cars are becoming um, more and more digital and, you know, always online, most cars that you get now you can get with a Wi-Fi hotspot, stuff like that. There are now features that you could subscribe for in cars. And there's a lot of a lot of hubbub about that because you start treading, I think, into gray areas between, um, you know, do you want to have your airbags deploy or not yeah. on uh, a subscription? So do you make like there's safety features, then there's like fun features. There's things like Sirius XM and all that. Those have been around for a while, but now you're starting to talk about like turbo packages or the ability to, you know, to have a faster car, get more horsepower out of your car and tune the engine differently. I think those start getting a little bit, little bit dangerous in my opinion, in the sense of not just physically dangerous really, but like, then that's going too far with subscriptions, potentially. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that's a little egregious. I mean, some of these examples feel like they should be, they're just the model of the car, right? You know, if you choose the high performance model, you get, that's what you pay for. Right. You get it. My issue with subscriptions with cars would kind of be, well, you're going to charge me this amount for the car. So I bought the product, but then to fully experience the product, you're going to try and charge me various subscription fees to use the car that I've bought. Yeah. That, that would feel weird. I get paying for you know premium support, right? So you, you pay and you get totally like AAA. Yeah, you have AAA, yeah. you have those packages, you have like extended warranties in general. That's kind of a old school subscription that's been around for well before the internet, or just to buy an extended warranty, which will have a, you know, they'll tack it onto your lease payment. It'll just be yep. right there passively. You pay, oh, an extra. $10 a month or $15 a month. And the loan just covers that. Don't worry, but they just slap it on. But now you start to get into features. And that's one thing that I think is, uh, I hope doesn't stick around too much. If I'm being honest, I yeah. love subscription. That might be too far for me. <laughs> I, I think, I feel like subscriptions should be the optional extras that if you don't take them, you're not worse off. But if you do take them, you are getting some actual extra benefit, Absolutely. not the benefit that you feel like you should have had anyway. Right. You know, it'd be like, you know, something like Olipop, right? If they send out their cans with no, um, what's the, the opener yeah, thing The called? subscription to get the little pull yeah. tab on it. You, you, have, you have to pay an extra subscription fee to get the cans with the pull tabs. By the way, but yeah, yeah. wouldn't you imagine if they're like, or you could just use a hammer and a screwdriver and boop, you're good. Like, yeah. oh. someone would do that though. Someone would say, no, don't give me the pull tabs. I got a screwdriver. I got a knife. Just Yeah. Well, it's a bit like, so we've got an airline here called Ryanair. I don't mm-hmm. know if, do you know? Yeah. And this, this wasn't a subscription date thing, but it kept, comes into this category of like paying for things that you expect kind of with your ticket. And he was saying, well, you know, people would pay for to use the toilets. Things. This is the CEO saying he actually contemplated wow. it. And actually his reasoning, when you kind of read about it and he explained it, was kind of understandable in a way. Because he was basically saying, like, X amount of people will use the toilet on a flight. Right. So why should everyone pay for them? If I make people pay for the toilets, I can actually give you all cheaper seats. Mm-hmm. So I can make your flights even cheaper. And then you pay those add-ons, which actually might mean then you pay the same amount as you are now. Yep. But I mean, it's, it's one of those things that you're, you, you can't sell, can you? You can't market that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I don't think you'd put that on like a perk of your airline, but there's airlines like that here in the U.S., like uh, notably like Frontier Airlines and a couple of other ones. Or Spirit Airlines are like 
cheapest tickets, nickel and dime, everything. You want a blanket? That's like five bucks. You want, you know, I, don't quote yeah. me on the prices here, but it's like, well, I mean, I'm on video, but so the parts with that, you, there's practicality to it if you're trying to be economical. And there are people that do that because they're like, hey, this is the cheapest flight. And I don't need to go to the bathroom and I don't need a soda. I'll grab one in the airport and whatever. I think that it's not bad logic. It's just a, I, I guess I'm more practical. And like, I would personally rather just be like, I just want to have access to the bathroom if I need it. I don't yeah. want to have to be ringing up a charge real quick and like standing in front of the door being like, uh, okay, is the card reader. They're like, sorry, the card's not talk, working. Because they don't <laughs> yeah. take cash, you know, on flights. They like never take cash. It's like, this credit card reader better be working. And we get, you know. Can, can you imagine the, the upsell flow that you go through when you're buying your ticket, which would then at the end say, Would you like to buy a toilet token? <laughs> Do you pre, plan pre, on eating pre, pre your before the flight? Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'd be tough. But hey, someone can make a flow for that. Someone can make a funnel. <laughs> Yeah, cool. So, so back to subscriptions. Yeah, so the yeah. we're talking about do's and don'ts, right? So we got a little distracted by, I guess, like inappropriate automobiles and everything. One of the big do's I was going to mention is, in the end of the day, the, the most the cornerstone thing is always financial planning and analysis. And so the FP&A work, I am center myself around being a data driven marketer. I'm not the blue sky dreaming visionary style brander. I'm a marketer that applies data. And with that, subscriptions have a ton of data. You have churn, you have revenue over time, you have the waterfall of revenue and how it hits your books. You have the planning for merchandise and costs, the the dialing up when your media goes up and your working capital needs change. Like it's predictable, but you have to build an engine for your business around it. So you don't make the mistake that I've seen countless companies make throughout the years of hey, my customer acquisition cost is great right now. We have inventory, so I'm going to put the pedal down and we're going to spend more on media and get more customers. You're like, inherently, and I think instinctively as a marketer, you think that's good. Like You're like, I'm hitting product market fit or I've hit it. Let's put the pedal down. The caveat there, you get too many customers and guess what? Your customer service gets overwhelmed or maybe your 3PL or your warehouse system gets overwhelmed. And now you're delivering a bad experience because people are calling about your product saying, hey, where's it at? And you have one customer service agent. It turns out you need 10 right now. And then also because of your media payback period, let's say it's three months, which is pretty average for, for subscription commerce brands, where you get your money back from the media you put in. Well, if you're paying 20,000 a month in media, and you have a three-month media payback, you have like 60 grand in working capital and you're advertising at all times. Well, if you all of a sudden are now doing $100,000 a month on a three-month media payback, now you're sitting at $300,000 in working capital. And if you didn't have that cash laying around, now you're like, oh, I, I got to get I gotta get money from somewhere. And maybe yeah. that payback period, maybe the quality of the customer slip, what if it becomes four months? And now all of a sudden you need $400,000. Oh, by the way, you got to buy more inventory for these new customers that you got. So- it is really tempted to be short-sighted because you see wins. And as and when you're ROAS or traditional e-commerce, it's like, oh yeah, with ROAS is good. Return on ad spend is good. Spend because that's that is I am spending a dollar right now to make five or eight or ten or whatever. Subscription, there's sneaky ways that it can get on top of you. So I always try to tell people right before they're about to slam their foot on the gas is say, are you ready for these things? And it's about making sure you have the cash to support the business because 
you can go really hot and just flop and fall on your face with a subscription because people will hate the experience. And then congrats, you've created like a negative K factor on your company to where people posting on your Facebook and posting on Trustpilot and Google reviews that, oh, I bought this. It took three weeks to get delivered. And I waited on the phone for two hours to get to somebody. Oh my gosh, that could be a nail in the coffin. So FPNA and understanding your data and being disciplined is so critical for subscription coverage. But if you do that, then it just becomes seeing the future, really. That's the biggest pitfall I tell people to avoid all the time. Yeah. And I think it's it's really important that you mentioned those different departments and things, right? It's not just a case of saying, okay, like acquisition's going well, let's ramp up. So you've got to make sure the inventory is there and that you've got the ability to bring new inventory in. You've got to make sure- Why chain right now is not fun. Yeah, exactly. If you start to mess these up, then yeah, like you say, people get annoyed. I mean, you could scale back spend. Like you can obviously scale that spend uh, back quite quickly if you need to, but then. But that comes at a cost too. That's like you scale, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, the, the, so yeah, you can scale back, scale back spend, but you've already gotten a lot of customers and they're mad. And let's say you're a company that wants to go out and raise money in the future, try to go out and get some seed round or venture capital, a, you know, maybe do a proper A, series A or series, maybe you've already raised money. That blip doesn't look good either. That, to, to an investor, they're like, well, what happened in, uh, in May there? Like, what happened? Why'd you get so many new customers and then stop? And then you're dancing around the fact that you broke your own company for a little while and that's why you need money. So there, there is a cost there. So while you can cauterize that wound and while you can, the problem and you know you can throw people at it and all this stuff, it could be, it's very tempting. It's just very tempting because everyone sees that, oh, that you got to strike while the iron's hot. You got to make hay while the sun shines, whatever analogy you want to do. But just be careful because in a subscription that relationship lingers and that becomes when people are looking into your brand and they're researching you, you don't want to hear, see the first things being like, yeah, it took a month for me to get my order. And I don't know why that is an instant, you know, kill of your ability to, to get that new customer. So uh, ounce of prevention. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, you know, if you give people that bad experience in the first place, they're not going to stick around. Nope. Like you, it, you know, in certain circumstances, you'll get people canceling their orders. And oh, Absolutely. Then that obviously causes you a problem because you've spent the money to acquire the customer who is now worthless. And maybe you bought inventory for them in two months from now and they've left and your churn's higher. And so now you're left with inventory on your shelves that you paid money for. It's like inventory sitting on your shelves is cash you can't tap into. So, yeah. Anyway, that's all comes down to proper planning and not making sure that you are able to consistently deliver on your, your promise. And every subscription starts out with that. Every subscription. It's trying to solve a market pain. It's trying to solve a problem. It's trying to create a relationship with a consumer. And if you fail to live up to that promise, the consumer will not forgive you. And then you'll lose them. And then the ones that they tell as well. Yeah. And so I'd like to touch on retention a bit. And I think what you said kind of um, touches on that a bit as well. You've got to give people a reason to subscribe, right? And to stay subscribed. And Convenience is not, you know, convenience is a bit nice, but convenience is not the reason people will stick with you. If, if I can, especially if I can go buy it off, off Amazon or a retail store as well, then that convenience becomes you know, table sometimes it's, Yeah, so, but sometimes it can become inconvenient, right? If I, if you just send me a new box of, you know, if it's a consumable product, if you just charge me and send me that new box and I've got loads still 
you know, left it in my cupboards or whatever, that's going to make me more likely to come onto the website and try and cancel. My, my immediate reaction is going to be cancel. If you give me a pause option, that's great. Uh, pause or, or delay my delay my uh, next delivery, fine. But the immediate thought going through my head is, I've got too much of this. I don't need this. I'm obviously not using it. So I'm going to go cancel it. So I suppose there's a, there's a few things to talk about there. But yeah, just generally retention. Like how would you advise people build their subscription model in a way that encourages retention? Yeah. So there's a lot of tools in this. First off, I'd say, listen to your customers, listen to what their pain points are and why they're canceling. They're, they will tell you, I have too much product or your product's too expensive. And you can't necessarily steer your business away from because of one or two or even 5% of your customers, because the other 80% of the majority of them really like your product. But you got to listen. So that comes with as they're canceling, doing questionnaires or you know dispositioning of clients or customers on why they're canceling. So just to answer yeah. that, in a similar way to what we're talking about with scaling up your spend and making sure other departments are aware, when you get that feedback, it's really important to actually analyze it properly, really assess it. You know, see if you're just getting quantitative data, if you're getting a few people saying it's too expensive, what do you really do with that? But if you're asking for some qualitative feedback as well. Mm -hmm. What you might find is actually that people don't think it's too expensive. People aren't seeing the value of it. Yes. And so the response, then some businesses might take the response of, well, we need to drop the price because that's the issue. When the correct issue, correct response to it could be, we need to educate people better. Or, you know, I had uh, Dan Shun on recently from a company called AirUp, and they've really put a focus on making sure people have the first, the perfect first sip from their Mm -hmm. product. Because if people mess it up, it, it's a bit of a new concept. It's scent-based. Mm-hmm. So if people mess it up and don't enjoy that first experience, they're not going to come back and buy again. right? So that's that's why they've put a massive focus on that, and that's then boost that retention. Yep. Yeah, so you hit a really interesting point. Uh, the value of the, the answer, the nuance of it's too expensive can be, I'm not seeing the value of it. Sometimes you are too expensive for certain people, even if they see the value, because it's just not in their budget. But um that is so important to listen to that and actually figure out, do I need to spend more time explaining the benefits of this product or the benefits of what we do, which isn't just, we send you stuff in a box. Like let's take meal at home is, is a big thing. We, we work with a, a lot of meal at home clients ourselves here at Stealth and you know, people got to eat, right? But the, the people who get food that shows up, you know, maybe the seals open, stuff like that. Having an incredibly customer-friendly, customer-friendly response that says, hey, you know, three of your meals or two of your meals came opened instead of sealed shut, so they might be spoiled. We're going to give you a full refund, and, you know, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen again sort of thing, right? Like, going above and beyond to make sure people see the value of what you're doing and how you stand behind your product, huge for retention. Another piece what? with retention – oh, go ahead. Sorry, oh, sorry. Uh, Naked Wine's here. Uh, well, might have to, you might have them in the U.S. as well. Yep. Uh, their policy is if, not even if it's something's wrong with it. If you don't like the wine, just let them know, and they will uh, credit you back for the next for your next order. Yep. And it's it's pretty much no questions asked. If you don't like it, if you think there's something wrong with it, cool. They obviously don't ask you to send it back because it's expensive. Yeah, so. do anything with it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's just no questions asked. Most of the time, you don't even have to speak to them. You can basically report it within their dashboard, and they just say, "Yeah, cool." Yeah, um, but they'll they'll be monitoring it, right? You know, yeah, they're going to be, there's algorithms and, and, and monitors of like, all right, this person has literally cost us more. So maybe we shouldn't have them as a customer anymore. But yeah, so like, so retention, 
one piece there is understanding what your customers are telling you about it and know that you're not for everybody. Like you aren't necessarily for everybody. A huge other piece with retention, candidly, is um, you, you talked about being able to pause. I think just actually giving customers now, especially full control over their subscription digitally is the way to go. And pausing, you know, statistically sort of from my experience and as we've monitored this through our brands, roughly about 15 up to 20% of people that ever pause come back in any capacity. So pausing is basically a cancel. It's usually like, it's the cancel of like, I don't want to break up, but I just, now's not a good time. But it usually just ends up, they keep pausing and pausing as long as they can. And then finally they're like, you know what? I just need to call and cancel because I've been pausing for eight months straight. Um, So we treat pauses like cancel. We suggest everyone else do as well and still get that information, figure out why they're pausing it. And maybe sometimes it's like, Hey, I'm moving. And I don't want to miss my package. It's logical stuff like that. But usually the root cause of a pause is still one of a few things that's too expensive. I have too much product or I'm not seeing the value of what you're bringing. Other pieces with retention though, here's a subtle thing I I wanted to throw out there. Um, Retention and subscription comes to maintaining a relationship with a customer. And the relationship is not just transactional. It's not just we're a company giving you stuff, right? It's we're a company that stands behind something. So these little things like implementing a social cause to your company um, will help keep some customers. And it's also a good thing you know, to do, period. Like it's just carving off some profits, donating. If you're a beachwear company, donating to Heal the Bay, having a social impact on your company, it's a thing that does help your business. But first and foremost, it also just helps. And people like that. And that they want to feel like they're a part of that. They want to know that I'm not just giving my money to a company so executives and team members there can, their stock can go up and all this stuff. It's like, I want to know that I'm having a a decent impact on the world as well. And you might say, well, that's a weird reason to stay on a subscription. It's not about staying on a subscription. It's actually about giving your money to a company you believe in and a company that is standing for something. And that sort of thing allows you to be like, well, I have too much stuff, but I'm going to give my neighbor some of this stuff. And, you know, you know, I don't need to stop my subscription because I know my money's going somewhere nice. Right. So adding a social impact, it sounds weird to say in like a capitalistic money making sense, but it actually is, I think, one of those win wins that contributes to something good and also is good for your business. I've seen that time and time again be really important. Yeah. And it's but it's got to be genuine. Right. And it's yeah, it's got to really look actually genuine you know so you, mm-hmm. you do see some companies which you know all over their website they'll talk about the cause they they support the one that i've been looking at recently is tony's chocolate only okay it is honestly it's the best chocolate i've ever had okay it's fantastic you're selling uh, me on it already this is some k factor uh, happening right now in real time highly recommend you go check it out okay their thing i just, I mean, there's no point me showing it. You, I'll show it to you afterwards because obviously listeners can't see it. But uh, their, their packaging has messaging on it about their cause, and it's all about ending slavery in chocolate and and yeah. making making it a better industry. And that genuinely comes across in everything. Like on their website, it's easier to get to the story and their cause than it is to actually find the list of their products. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Because mm-hmm. that's the thing they care about, and that comes across really genuine. But there are other brands which, you know, they'll put a little badge on their website or on the product page saying ethically sourced right, or something like that. And that is literally it. Yep. And And that's not enough. That's not enough. That's like, 
hey, what badges can we use? What what does our supply chain say? What badges we can use? And then we're just relying on them to say, yeah, this was totally sourced ethically. Yeah, just use that badge. And then you know, if someone ever asks about it, refer them to us, and then we'll handle that conversation. That's not very it, genuine. It might make you buy in the first place. It might be a little checkbox thing that makes you go, cool, yeah, I'm happy with these. But it's, it's not that thing that's going to build like that relationship, like you said. You're yep. not going to feel engaged with that business and think, well, okay, these guys are, you know, they really work hard to ethically source all their products. You you probably forget about it, you know, the moment you receive the product. Yep. Uh, if, if, if in the case that they've just got the, the badge or something. Absolutely. So yeah, I think those are like some of the biggest things people could do with retention. The, the last sort of sub piece I can mention on that in regards to keeping customers and I keep dancing around this topic a little bit, but it's really just like, I would just say as a company really push active listening and it's easy as a company to talk, to talk down to your consumers. I, mean, I don't mean that in a bad way, but you're telling them why they need this product. You're telling them about your product. You're just talking about yourself, but just spend a moment and listen to them and really create the authentic engagement, have customer service that is branded. So like the transactions of like, Hey, I'm just talking with someone on live chat. And they all sound different. One, you know, some people are misspelling things or they're talking ultra robotic and it might be a robot or it might be AI backing or, you know, they're just macros and scripts. But bring your brand promise all the way through everything you do because there's an, this is going to get kind of like maybe a little too deep, but there's basically like an illusion of when you're with a working with a brand, if you're a brand that's really prop your, your branding up and you, you live by all these things and all the, and then you, you have a weird interaction with customer service. It's just like, feels so like, Oh, it kind of breaks the, the fourth wall and breaks the facade that you had about that brand. And that can dive bomb your perception of a brand so quickly, just by having like, a clumsy interaction. Like I always say, like, look, yeah. if your customer's got a problem, don't, there's no going back and forth. Like you just fix the problem that something shown, showed up uh, an article of clothing with a hole in it. Don't sit there and, and say, well, did you wear it? Did you just like send them another pair of pants? Like just get it done, but do it in yeah. a branded and helpful way. Go ahead. So it's, it is okay to ask these questions, right? But you yeah. do it after you've said, don't worry, we'll fix that for you. After you we're take gonna, care we're of it. We're going to get that sorted. I'm going to send a new one out to you. Do you mind me just ask, did you try wearing it? Did you do this? Did you do that? You know, Did you wash it a certain way? Just trying to get that information from them. Nothing wrong yep. with that. But as long as it comes as the, we're taking, the afterthought piece. Yes. It's, it's, and people like, will be a lot more forthcoming with that. They might just say, yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, I put it on and the hole was there. And maybe they did put the hole. It doesn't matter. Ship them another pair of pants. Like, just make them happy, and they are going to be like this company took care of me. And, and the, you break that wall, you will lose a cus- you will lose customers in mass. Well, so, something I noticed on Amazon uh, a little while ago with their returns is they they ask you why you're returning it, and depending on the option you select, sometimes you get free returns, sometimes you have to pay. And it, it's basically if you I think if you say you just decide you don't want it anymore, then they'll ch- try and charge you. But if you say not fit for purpose or not for what I wanted it for, something like that, then it's fine. But interesting, on the customer experience, you know, that those clunky conversations you have and things. This obviously isn't a brand that I'm particularly in love with. It's Thames Water. They, mm-hmm. I think they are the only water supply company in the UK anyway. So I don't really have a choice. But they've sent me a bill, and that bill has an estimated starting meter reading and an estimated ending meter reading. So I'm like, well, 
That's we pretty much made this bill up, right? Cool. Let's try and let's try and fix this. So I got in touch and I was on live chat. And I was asking about some meter reading. I said, well, normally, from what I understand, you guys send out send out an engineer to basically go down the street and take a meter reading at every meter. And they haven't done this. So this person tried to tell me where the meter was and sent me a coded response to where this thing was. You know, it, it, it effectively said something that it was, it was the right-hand box on the pathway, some like that. But it was all written in shorthand mm-hmm. code. And she just put that in front of me and that was it. And was like, that's the location. I went, okay, I get that's the location, but what you don't understand is that means nothing to me. You must understand that is not... That is that not what I was asking. That is a... That's some sort of internal code you use. And she didn't seem to be able to... It was obviously poor training, I, I think, it was outsourced customer service and when we couldn't get past that and it ended up with me saying fine i'll go try and take a meter reading i have located it i can't access it because i'm not a temp daughter engineer so <laughs> but it's one of those things that makes you just go you know if, if i had the option i'd be switching. you'd be gone you'd be gone right like uh, i'm saying like, I, I don't want to have i don't wanna have this issue every time you send me a bill and tell me i, I made up bill read, yeah made up bill and tell me i have to go read the the, the meter, which I can't access. It, it's those sort of things. And I'm sure I've had these experiences with, with other companies as well, where it, it comes across as they don't care, right? Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The, resp- the response always comes across as, this is your fault. It's your problem. I'm just getting paid to sit here and respond to this ticket. Not a good way to run a subscription business, but I guess if you're water and the only business in town, then I don't know yeah. what else. Because you got more leverage than the average subscription box. A customer service, uh, approach to customer service that I read about years ago, company customer service platform. And they had this thing about uh, first contact resolution. Yes. So you don't just answer the person's question or, you know, you don't, in going back to your, like, your clothing example, you don't just say for your first response, oh, have you worn it or have you right. washed it? You give the customer everything you can to allow them to reach that conclusion. And first contact doesn't necessarily have to be the, f- the one email back. It needs to, but it needs to be this whole, or, or one response on live chat, but it needs to be, I'm going to answer, I'm going to resolve your issue and I'm going to resolve close, closely related issues that you might also, you know, so someone, you know, well, for example, it could be someone trying to cancel their subscription. Mm-hmm. And you can say, well, did you know that there's, instead of saying, go to this page and cancel, you can say, well, did you know you can uh, change your delivery date? Or did you know you can pause? But here is also the cancel function if you need it. Right. So it's giving people those multiple options, giving people a better experience. And that's where customer service really works. Yeah, I think the, so I, I built out a customer service team of about 700 when I was in the fashion business. And I've always I've realized over time, this is different 10, 15 years ago, and maybe not the same with subscription, but it was a little bit more the way that it was run, I should say. But you have to tell consumers they can always get their money. Like if you're doing, if you're holding their money over here and like, hey, before I give you this, let's go through a few things. The, the consumer is going to be automatically combative. But if you say, hey, you can cancel and we'll refund you. I get that. Now, now that I know that, Let's have a real conversation about what your problem is. People will tell you the problem as long as they know they have access to their funds or they're going to be made, they're going to be taken care of. So first contact resolution, there's also, uh, there is a real cost behind 
dragging something along to hold on to somebody's money because you can say, Hey, I, we know you want to cancel, but we want to ask you a few questions first. Then they don't get back to you. Now you put the, you're saying, Oh, consumer, we have some questions before we, you cancel. And then you're expecting them to get back to you. Then they don't, then they get billed again. Then they get more mad. Then they start saying things like, I'm going to just charge it back. Or I'm going to go to the BBB. I'm going to do all these other things. And you've created a combative customer that every time they reach out to you, you as a company are spending money on an agent to try to answer that. And like the math just doesn't work out. Like if, if someone has to contact you two, three, five times, like you've already dished out all that money you're trying to keep to an agent just to get the runaround. And then eventually the consumer is going to get their money anyway. And guess what? They're going to be mad about it. And then they're going to hate on you. So like, you have to basically say, like, I look at it as if we were just sitting right in, in, you know, across the table from each other. I would just sit there and say, your money's right here. You could take it and just walk away. But I'd love some more information about why you're canceling, what went wrong, what we as a company could do better. And then once you break through that and customers know that they are going to be taken care of, they'll be honest and they will give you much more insights than a combative one that's like, give me my money. I want to go. Give me my money. I don't want to talk to you. Give me my money. Why would you give me my money? So first contact resolution is just a better service and also a less costly adventure. And if you need to fight that hard to keep a customer, you really need to think about your subscription business in a different light. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're so worried about that one customer, obviously it's not one, but the handful of customers who are trying to- That type of cohort, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. Then you got other things to think about. Yeah, cool. Anything else you want to mention about subscriptions? I mean, I can go on all day, but we can uh, <laughs> yeah. we can move on. Well, yeah, just I mean, just before we finish, is there anyone in the DTC space that you'd like to have lunch with, or any anyone from a particular company? Yeah, you know, I've always been a fan of a guy uh, named Neil Patel. He started uh, Kissmetrics and at Crazy Egg. I was one of the first people that used this that, that tool, Crazy Egg, when it came out. I had to be over a decade ago. I just like, I I gravitate towards analytical focus marketers that that always strive to put the the data behind the hypothesis. And that's not me saying brand marketers and visionaries are, are bad because you need that juice too. But I love being able to just like somebody who's spent their life trying to sort out data to make it actionable. Um, and present it for brands to make smart marketing decisions. Just someone I've been a fan of for a long time. Yeah, same. I've followed him my entire career. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, been a- it's it's just it's fascinating, right? It's just like I remember when Crazy A came out. I was again. This was like I, I heard about it. I was probably this was when I was in uh, in the before the fashion business, and I was had to be one of the first. Call it a couple thousand customers. I'm sure they ha- they've had millions since, but it was still very new. It was like. It was not like a sign up on the internet and just get it going. It was, here's how to implement it. Here's how to read it. But I just remember being blown away with what it could show you, how people were interacting with your site, how, how it summed up data and made it actionable. And all it was at the time was just like a script that lived on the page that would just basically give you heat mapping to what people are doing on the site. And it was like mind blowing at this time just to be like, hey, creative person you think people are paying attention to this button they've not clicked it once but this one up here on the right in the hero space this is where everybody's clicking on you're not getting people going this far down the site and now we have empirical data for that just stuff like that just like it always it just completes the picture the data completes the picture yeah absolutely i I love heat maps uh use them all the time Uh, obviously because 
I, I do conversion rate optimization. So, <laughs> so yeah, good quite a key part of what I do. Awesome. And uh, are there any, I guess, apart from things like Crazy Egg, any other marketing tools that you'd recommend? There's a lot depending on obviously what you're trying to do, but between, I'm going to stay focused on things like tap clicks and other sort of data-driven tools that obviously you have your a good implementation of Google Analytics is still sort of table stakes. You want to get that in place. Tap clicks to help you get a more well-rounded view of your, your data as you plug in different data sources and navigate the data that is your marketing, your your brand. Um, big fan of just the various. Like I, we didn't really talk about this today, but the, as a marketer, SMS is is and and what will lead to flexible subscriptions. I think um, sort of passive subscriptions or on demand subscriptions. All the different marketing tools that exist there around SMS. I don't have have a favorite at the moment. They all kind of do a lot of the same things, but. Implementing SMS technology extends your relationship with the customer, makes it easier for the customer, and everyone checks their text messages. Now, I don't know how it's going to be in five years from now when every brand is doing this, but right now, it's a good time to be on it. I think the last piece I'd mention is this is just kind of a classic tool that I use all the time, and I'm sure you're incredibly familiar with too, Will, is Hotjar. I just love being able to see what people are doing on the site. I just sort of you know, you can go to all those places that allow you to have people test the site and they record and they get feedback, but just anonymously seeing what people, how people interact with your site. It is never how I expect to be. And I always yeah. learn something. I can look through a thousand recordings and all of them are so different than how I perceive people using the product. So I just love doing that just to sort of get an idea of how people are getting hung up on your site. I think just examining the human nature. It, it, there's probably a trend now that I think about it. Like examining how humans are interacting with you and putting data behind that is all the tools that I love the most. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Hotshot is Hot great. It's probably one of the tools I use the most. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's kind of a table stakes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been great. Really interesting stuff. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more, what's the best way? Yeah, you can email me at evan at stealthventurelabs.com. Just one word, Stealth Venture Labs. Find me on LinkedIn as well. I'll answer any messages there. And brands that are looking to scale, my, my company, I guess, is probably where I talk a little bit about what we do just for a minute is we're a growth agency or a uh, incubator for brands that are either trying to get off the ground or already on the ground and trying to, to do more in growth. So we handle all paid channels, can manage budgets as low as, you know, say 10 to 15,000 a month of 10 million a month. So we have some of those as well. So yeah, hit us up if you need anything around that and hit me up if you have any questions. I love talking about the industry. So awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Evan. Thank you. So you've got to really think about how to introduce a subscription to your business. You need to identify that disposable or reusable part of your product and experience and encourage people to subscribe to that. Um, but a subscription could also be service-based. So think about Amazon Prime or Costco membership. They make huge amounts of money from the subscriptions themselves rather than the products they sell. If you're a fashion business, could you have customers subscribe to a monthly stylist update where they get sent a few personalized recommendations, kind of like Stitch, Stitch Fix or, or Thread, make money from the inspiration and the experience and just remain competitive on the actual clothing itself. But if you're going for a renewable subscription, you don't need to offer subscribe and save. That shouldn't be the reason customers subscribe. And oftentimes you'll find lots of customers subscribe and then cancel immediately just to get that discount. If your subscription really does offer value to customers, they'll be happy to subscribe. If you'd like to hear more from Evan, you can drop him an email or head over to find him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback or guest requests, please send over to will at customerswhoclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. 
Next up, I've got Ramon Van Meers. Uh, we're going to be talking about how he's grown Alphapore and why he chose to buy a business instead of starting from scratch. But until then, keep those customers clicking. 